So the Bible has about 20 major themes and another 50 to 70 smaller themes that you must grasp in order to understand the whole Bible. There is one theme that if you get wrong, it will make utter confusion out of the entire Bible, and that's the theme of, of the wrath of God against sin. There's, there's few theological topics that are more unacceptable to talk about in today's contemporary world, and for that matter, in many churches, than the wrath of God. Yet the biggest danger that uh, every person has in every ethnic group, in every part of the world, in every time in history, the past, present, and future, is the righteous wrath of God against guilty sinners, leading to everlasting suffering. Unless... God himself rescues us from his own judgment. If you look at the Bible, look at the Old Testament, the wrath of God is spoken either directly or indirectly at least 600 times. In the New Testament, it's, it's many times as well. If one doesn't have an appreciation for the wrath of God, what you lose is how sin is bound up in offending God. And it's not just offending an impersonal moral code but it's offending the God of the universe. And as, as a result, the glory of God and the love of God is lost, and the notion of salvation is changed. So if this Sunday is your first Sunday that you've been here, um, uh, we don't always speak on the wrath of God, but today we'll be uh, getting into that at the beginning of this message. So, so uh, hang in there and... Uh, uh, Next Sunday, I suspect we won't be talking about the wrath of God as much. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is a pastor and theologian many of you are familiar with. He's known for many things, one of which is a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you haven't read it, it's not for the faint of heart. It's very blunt, it's very direct, uh, and it cuts to the heart of, of the, God's wrath. He preached to his congregation July 8, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. And he viewed the Christian faith as a very serious thing. And if you think about it, regardless of our age, whether we're two or 102, we're all on the, ver on the precipice of eternity. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what the next five minutes will bring. His position was simple, that the good news is the bad news is bad, and yet hope remains. He told his congregation, he said, I don't desire to go about to terrify you needlessly or represent your case worse than it is, but I do think that there are a number of people belonging to this congregation in imminent danger of being damned to all eternity. Harsh words. Knowing this, he threw caution to the wind as he delivered his message. And he pleaded with his congregation to hear the, the, the message of wisdom. And just one excerpt from his, from his famous sermon he says this, he says, you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn us under. God has had it on his heart to show how angels and men both how excellent his love is and how terrible his wrath is. He was unwilling in, in his life to dumb down his message and to make it in contemporary language user-friendly. He didn't go there. He believed to do so would be a betrayal of wisdom. 
But the unavoidable truth is that the God of the Bible is described as a God of wrath. And we see it identified at the beginning of our passage this morning in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew just read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If we go back to the original Greek word for wrath, it's, it's, it's a uh, daunting word, rage, fury, anger. So it's not to be taken lightly by any means. And as we reflect on, on God's wrath this morning and begin to talk about that a little bit, we'd be wise to remember the, the warning that Paul provided uh, to us, not to focus on the failings of other people, but to think about our own failings. Paul provides this warning very clearly in, in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you have no excuse, every one of you who pass judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. He's very direct. As one pastor says, he says, every one of us is wired to put our own failings in the best light. And the failings of his adversaries in the worst light. We soften our own sins with mild words and skewer others with hard words. Or worse, we see the sins of others and are blind to our own. And when the truth hunts us down and corners us, we will dodge and distort and evade and mislead, quibble and lie. And when that doesn't work to suppress the truth, we will shift to blaming and accusing and deflecting. Anything to hold down the truth from having its full effect in our lives. And that's what Romans 1.18 is all about. As I think about it, that's the way I am. Apart from the saving grace of, of Jesus Christ. And that's the way you are, apart from God's mercy. So the issue this morning is your heart and my heart and what we can learn from this passage in our lives. And this, this passage is not about a specially bad group of people. It's about all of humanity. And it's about you and I. And the conclusion is reached in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where it says both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So the issue this morning is how people like us, who are prone from birth to distort the truth and suppress the truth, can, can get free from this slavery and be saved. And pointing us all back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this morning, we're going to focus on three questions and then have a concluding statement that we're going to focus on. It's in your handout. The first question is, how is God's wrath revealed? And we're going to focus on how it's revealed now. And what does it mean to suppress the truth? And what are the dangers of this, this exchange that takes place in, in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 23? And then bring it to a conclusion and, and reasons to rejoice. So let's begin as we look at this passage um, in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness. 
So the first question that comes to mind is, how is the wrath of God being revealed? From this passage, we can look at, at uh, the first thing to notice is, is the word is revealed in verse 18 is the same word in tense that we see in verse 17. There, the righteousness of God is, is being revealed. And here in verse 18, the wrath of God is, is being revealed. In both cases, the tense is present. It's a present tense. It's a continuous action, which means that the wrath of God is happening now, not just in the future. Now, you could, you could be sure that there's a, a day of wrath coming. We see it in Romans 2, 5. We see it in Romans uh, 2, 8, and 9. And we see it in Romans 5, 9. But in advance of that outpouring of, of, of wrath, God's wrath is also present now. And so the question comes to mind, well, what, what does that look like? What does God's wrath that's revealed now look like in our lives? So there's three primary examples of this. The first one is a universal human death. And if you have your Bibles, follow along with me looking at Romans chapter 5. We see that um, death is a judgment of God on the ungodliness and righteousness of, of the human race, and it's rooted in Adam. Move down to the middle of uh, verse 15 of chapter 5 of Romans. It says that many, the many died through one man's trespass. And then go to 16, verse 16. Death is called a judgment and a condemnation. And it says, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So you can see from this, these passages that death is a judgment and it's a condemnation. So it's a, an expression of God's wrath against sin. Then you go down to verse 18 of, of chapter 5. And it says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So the first answer we see here is that the wrath of God is being revealed now against human sin and universal human death. Unless the Lord returns, we're all going to die. The second example of, of God's wrath revealed now is universal futility and misery. We see that being revealed now, and we can all cite examples of of misery in the world and, and futility and, and difficulty that exist. Um, look at Romans chapter 8, in, uh, beginning of verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. And stop right there for a minute. And I think about what this means up to this point in, in these verses. The sufferings of this present time seems to mean that suffering is going to be inevitable, inevitable in this fallen world. And we can all cite examples of suffering that we've, we've endured. You may be a few days from retiring and, and the doctor gives you a diagnosis. If you have cancer, you're looking forward to all kinds of, of, of new things you're going to do. And your life change take a totally different direction. Or you're a loyal employee with a company for many, many years, and your boss calls you in and says, well, there's been a downturn of business, and you're going to be laid off, and you have no idea how you're going to pay your mortgage or pay your, your bills, uh, doctor's bills for your children. 
Suffering is inevitable in this fallen world. Romans 8, uh, 20 says the creation was subjected to fertility. In 8.21, it says it's called a bondage to corruption. Look back at Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. It says uh, where the subjection to fertility came from. In verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And what, what comes next? Go ahead and shout it out in your Bible. Most translations say the same thing. In what? Hope. In hope. This means that God subjected creation to fertility. And we know that Satan and Adam couldn't have done this because Paul said it was done in hope. Neither Satan nor Adam uh, in the Garden of Eden was planning for the hope of the human race. What they did was just sin. But God showed his wrath against sin and subjected creation to fertility, not as a last word, but in hope. The hope that would someday come with the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. So we see God's wrath revealed now in universal human death. We see it revealed in futility and misery and suffering and creation. And the third is that Paul speaks directly to, in Romans chapter 1, is the sinking degradation of human thinking and behavior. So after describing the ungodliness and righteousness of men, in uh, verse 19 to 23, Paul says in verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In other words... God reveals his wrath against sin by giving some people up to corruption. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. So we have three, three examples of God's wrath revealed now. He delivered all to death. He's subjected all to fertility, and he's giving, given many over to the de degradation of their own minds and hearts. So look again at verse 18. It says, uh, Paul uses the, the phrase, ungodliness and righteousness of men. It's a broad term that refer, can refer to many different kinds of sins. But Paul is looking at one specific sin here, and the, a sin that you and I are guilty of. So we see this at the end of verse uh, 18. We see ungodly people and righteous people, as we all are without grace, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the question comes up, how does that work? What does that look like? And we see that in verse uh, 19 to 21. Paul lays that out for us. So I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to follow along with me here. It says... Uh, in verse 18, that we suppress the truth and the righteousness. And then beginning in, in verse 19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So what we know at this point is that the truth being suppressed is something known about God. 
because God has made it plain to us. Verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now he's getting a little bit more detailed here. Here's the truth that is known about God from the created world. It's his eternal power and divine nature. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so we are without excuse. And there's the truth that we suppress. His eternal power and divine nature. Another way to referring to divine nature is, is his general revelation and, and, and deity. And as we know, general revelation is a revelation that God provides to everybody regardless of what the scripture says. It's, it's general rev revelation we see uh, in God's handiwork in nature. We see the way God orchestrates historical events and, and history as an example of, of God's general revelation. Or what God places on every person's heart that, that he is God. And as opposed to specific, specific revelation, which is uh, what we find in scripture about Jesus Christ and the gospel message. But now he tells us there's another truth here, which is our response to the fact that God's, of, to God's eternal power and, and, and the fact that he's revealed himself as, as God. And we see that in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him. Literally, it means do not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we see God's eternal power and divine nature everywhere. Every person on earth sees this. You see it in the detail of a flower or the changing of the seasons. It's amazing how the seasons change and the trees die away and they come back and, and in a sense, reborn again. We see it in the healing power of the body. There's many doctors and nurses here, and all of us recognize that the body heals itself in many different ways, and it's just amazing how it does that. We can look up at the stars at night and see the vastness of, of the sky, and, and we know that there's a God that's behind all that. And the more we know about our world, the more we can marvel at God's handiwork. The more scientific discoveries that are made, the, uh, the more we, could, we can marvel at, at what God has done. I was reading recently about the DNA in the body. It's, it's located in every cell of the human body. And, it's, and it contains a blueprint for how our body is, is, is built and maintained. And it's a marvel of miniaturization. According to, to the um, records and, and notes, um, and and uh, scientists, they say that DNA contains, as I said, all the information necessary to build and maintain the human body, over 200 bones, all the information for 600 muscles, 10,000 auditory nerve fibers, 2 million optic nerve fibers, 100 billion nerve cells, 400 billion feet of blood vessels and capillaries, and all that information is contained in a DNA that weighs a few thousandths, millionths of the weight of a paperclip. The more we know about the world around us, the more we can marvel at God's uh, power and his, his, his uh, detail and his, his handiwork in nature. So here's the truth that we suppress. 
apart from the grace of God in our lives, that there is a God. He is a creator of all things. He is powerful, more powerful than anything else because he's made all else. He's eternal because nothing outside of himself could be uh, brought into being. Therefore, we must exist to display his glory and not to compete with him for his glory. So we must exist in absolute dependence on God. And therefore, we are to live in constant gratitude, something we overlook. I overlook that many times. So let's read on. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So now we get to this exchange that takes place, exchanging the glory of God for other things. Some people call that a dangerous exchange or, or a sinister exchange or a dark exchange, but nevertheless, it's an exchange of the glory of God for other things. And it is accompanied by futile thinking. Verse 21, for although, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. <clears throat> so if you think about it, God gave us a brain. He gave us minds with the capacity to reason, to imagine, to speculate, to think and ponder and meditate. Why? Why did he give us all that, that power? Our brains have the ability that no other being on earth has. He gave us that so that we would know God and think about God and speak of God and praise God and, and build and make things that brings glory to God. When we do not honor God and demonstrate a humble gratitude, Paul says our thinking becomes futile. So we have many examples of futile thinking in our culture and in our own lives. One that comes to mind is the rejection of absolute truth found in Scripture. That happens all the time. And in a sense, whenever we sin... It's a rejection of God's truth and his promises, a rejection of who God is as a form of unbelief. Another example of futile thinking is, is when we exchange God for, for anything else. And one thing that comes to mind is our spouse or our families. Sometimes as precious and, and valuable as our families and our spouse are, sometimes we think our spouse is going to bring us our ultimate happiness and not God, and that's futile thinking. Young people that are, are they're not married yet, sometimes they think, if I just ma become married, I'm going to be the happiest person in the world, and, and marriage can bring wonderful happiness. It's a wonderful blessing, but it's not going to bring ultimate happiness. So when God is not glorified and thanked, but rather exchanged for other things, Futile and vain is what the mind becomes when it's no longer used to love God and to know God and treasure God above all things. 
And it doesn't matter if you have three PhDs. It doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the world. It will be futile thinking. 1 Corinthians 3.20 says, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So another danger that, that occurs in this exchange of the glory of God for other things, and it is this exchange feels wise. It seems like the wise thing to do to exchange God's glory. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. What could be more wise, he says, than to make your own God? Sometimes that comes in very subtle ways. <clears throat> We all know it's, it's important to save our money, to, to save responsibly. It's a biblical thing to do. It truly is, to save for things that we might need in the future and to save for a variety of reasons, a variety of needs. But it can sometimes be a slippery slope. When money becomes our God, saving can become hoarding. And we hoard for things that, that, that um, um, we don't need. And so it's a slippery slope between saving responsibly and 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 uh, hoarding and having money as our God is a temptation to us. And when we think that way, our thinking becomes futile. Another example of futile thinking would be rationalization. We could take something that is wrong and in our minds think through that and think, well, it's really right. We can, it makes sense to do this. Who, who wouldn't do this? Um, it's a wise thing to do. The advantages seem obvious. It says that we're resourceful, we're creative, intelligent when we exchange God for other things that we rationalize that are, that are right things. Make your own God. It makes us independent. It keeps us in control. And as Terry read uh, at the beginning of the service, uh, we see this played out very clearly in the discussion between the woman and the serpent in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. And it says... The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you shall surely be like God, knowing good and evil. Who would not want to be like God in this case? Who would not want to have your eyes opened? It's a wise thing to do. Knowing good from evil, it's a wise thing to do. But it's a deadly thing to do. It's a foolish thing to do. This is the way it was from the beginning, and it still is. We see this everywhere in our culture. We can see examples in our own lives where, where we've done this. Some examples that I've ran across here that I thought would be um, appropriate here. Uh, evolutionary biologist and atheist and Oxford professor Richard Dawkins claims this. He says, religion is no longer, as a no longer a serious candidate in the field of explanation. It is completely superseded by science. Bertrand Russell, a very smart man from worldly standards. It's a very wise man. He's a Nobel Prize laureate, mathematician, he professes wisdom but demonstrates foolish when he says, whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained, attained by scientific means. And what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. So 
we know that science does wonderful things. It's a tremendous blessing in our world, and, and God has, has granted us that blessing through science to develop new medicines, new ways of transportation, new home construction, and the list goes on and on. But science cannot answer some of the most important questions in life. Science can identify third-world needs in amazing ways and provide relief and supply long-term technology to help those countries in need. But science cannot remove those causes of corruption in those third-world countries. Science cannot change people's behavior and, and attitudes and, 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 uh, and dysfunction. And science cannot bring gospel light to the human heart. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So we want to assume the role of, of God in governing our lives, then we will perceive the dangers of this exchange as the wisest thing in the world. The last one that I'll touch on here as far as the exchange, I think is important and relevant, is the exchange of the glory of God for other things is, ex is that the exchange is truly, truly foolish, even if it looks wise. Professing to be wise, it became fools. Why? Why is this dangerous exchange of God for images so foolish? Paul gives a couple of answers. I'm just going to cover one. What he does in this passage is emphasize the infinite difference in value between what we give away and what we receive and, and replace and to replace it. So we know that the glory of God is infinite. The God of the universe has infinite value. And what we get in its place is infinitesimally small in value. And Paul spells this out in verse 23 in an amazing way. And they exchange the glory of, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the question is, is what are we actually getting when we give up the glory of God in this exchange? What do we get in return when we do that? John Piper has an interesting way of, of describing this. He says, if we think about it, man himself is already, according to Genesis 120, 127, an image of God and not God. We know that. But that is not what the exchange of God gets. Rather, it is, it is some, for something resembling man. No, not, that's not what we get either. It is for an image resembling man who is himself an image. So what Paul is doing is showing the infinite difference between the glory of God and what we get in its place, the, the real for a copy. And it's not even a copy that we get. When you exchange the glory of God for the best thing you can think of, which is ourselves, what you're actually trading, you're trading God for an image of an image of an image. And as some say, it's like trading a masterpiece for a copy of a copy of a copy. That's what we get when we exchange the glory of God for an image. It's a cheap, cheap copy. And we, we claim that's wise, and we seek after those cheap, cheap copies. God's wrath is revealed due to ungodliness and righteousness of men. So if you're an unbeliever here today, I don't know if we have any this morning or not. And I don't know if there's unbelievers listening to this message if they, if they do listen to it. But the question is, if I'm an unbeliever, I'm thinking, is wrath God's only response to ungodliness and righteousness? 
Is it is it only response to my ungodliness and righteousness? And the answer is no. God's wrath is always mingled with mercy. In this age of salvation, it's not going to last forever. This age of salvation and hope that we're in. In Romans 2, 4, and 5, Paul speaks to those who are missing this great truth. And he says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment, righteous judgment of God. So we know as we look at the Bible, God is always doing more than one thing. Jesus said he causes his son to rise on the, ev- on the evil and the good and send rains on the righteous and unrighteous. God warns us in our wrath and draws us near to him with his kindness. He speaks both languages. He speaks severity and he speaks tenderness. One pastor described it this way. He said, God's kindness and severity work together to help us maintain our faith in Christ. How do God's kindness and severity serve faith? The aim of looking at the severity is to keep you in kindness. Kindness is what we fly to. And his severity is what we flee from. God's severity has a way of serving faith by sending us running into the arms of the kindness of God. So unbeliever, God speaks to you in your pain to bring, bring warning to you. And God speaks to you in your pleasure to draw you to him through his mercy. So you don't want to misread the voice of God. So let me begin to conclude here and a couple more uh, points that I wanted to try to bring this, this home a little bit further. So we, we can thank God that, that Paul did not stop in, in with the wrath of God and the unrighteous and godless of man, but provided his, his words of truth in his, in his uh, scripture, where he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. So we have reasons to rejoice that Christ died to absorb the wrath of God. And that changes everything. It ripples through the entire universe, Christ's death on the cross and absorbing God's wrath. The Bible says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, curses anyone who hangs on a tree. But the love of God does not rest with the curse that hangs over all sinful humanity. He's not content to show wrath. So we, we can rejoice that God sends his own son to absorb the wrath and bear the, uh, the curse for all who trust in him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. Christ served as our substitute, provided by God himself. So here's, here's the, the, an important point to, to um, make note of. That Jesus Christ does not just cancel the wrath, but he absorbs it. 
Think about that for a minute. When you sin, he doesn't just, no more wrath. He, he, he absorbs the wrath into himself. He's bearing the wrath that we deserve. He diverts it from us to him. God's wrath was spent, not withdrawn, and was poured out on, on Christ. So we really never stand in awe of being loved by God until we understand the seriousness of our own sin and the justice of his wrath against us. But God's uh, punishment of, of us was poured out on Christ who died in our place. So Romans 8.1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined us for wrath. So some may be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute here. So in the beginning of your, your sermon, beginning of your message, you said God's wrath is being revealed now in death, in futility, and human uh, degradation of, of uh, thinking and behavior. Are they still the wrath of God against me if I'm a believer? And if not, why does all this still happen? So the answer is that, that death and futility of suffering and the degradation of human thinking and behavior are, are no longer the wrath of condemnation from our Heavenly Father. So let's think about that a little bit. For the, for the believer, and this is, this is a critical point here, for the believer, death and futility and, uh, of suffering and the degradation of behavior has all been fundamentally altered by the gospel of Christ. It's totally changed in, in the life of a believer how? How has that changed? Well, for believers, we can rejoice that the sting of death has been removed. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law, but thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing words. For the believer, we can rejoice that death is not the condemning wrath of God toward them. As an uh, uh, expression I love to, to repeat, is, is the last, it's the last gasp of a defeated enemy who opens the door to paradise for all those who believe. For believers, we can rejoice that the, that the futility from suffering for those who love God are, and are called according to his purpose, all things will work together for our good. So punishment now becomes, uh, 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 turns into purification. And destructive forces now become disciplinary in our lives to grow us. And the seeming chaos and futility of, of, uh, that comes our way in life is now the severe, but um, becomes the severe but loving hand of our Heavenly Father. And now, not only is the sting of death replaced with hope, Futility and suffering is replaced with meaning and purpose. And the dominion of sin is replaced with the love of righteousness. Just look at Romans 6, and it talks all about that. God does not give us over to a depraved mind. He gives us now the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've totally been altered. Therefore, we should awaken to the truth of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed now in this age of unrighteousness and godliness of men. We can't fully understand the world 
or the gospel without that truth. And may we also awaken to the truth that God is revealing something else at the same time. He's revealing the gift of righteousness for all who believe in Christ. And with that righteousness, there's no condemnation. There's no wrath on us anymore for you who believe. Death becomes a gateway to paradise. Suffering becomes a pathway to holiness. It's a difficult pathway, but it's the pathway to holiness. Sin becomes a dethroned enemy that we fight by the power of, of the Holy Spirit. So may we flee from the wrath of God and take refuge in the precious power of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray.